Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, in today for Jerome McDonald. For the last 25 years, Worldview has strived to bring you something meaningful in this complex world. Some of that mission may have been guided by Plato's idea, central in early Western philosophy, that every concept has an essential meaning. But as we've peeled back the layers of history and culture, we find that there can be lots of meanings. No problem has an easy solution, and lots of people who thought they'd found Plato's meaning of the world ended up either being dead wrong or with lots of people dead. Like, how do we rationalize colonialism? How does that jive with rational theories of meaning? When Worldview visited Canada and Michigan last month, I had a chance to sit down with Professor Ron Eglash at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He's observed a big problem in our industrial world. Privileged classes often keep their knowledge to themselves as though it were property. Eglash thinks that they use this knowledge to extract things and ideas from the earth and other people. Naturally, that's a big problem in the way of achieving equality and justice for colonized people. So Eglash set out to create a new field of science called ethno-computing to help people reclaim some of their indigenous knowledge and maybe even pervert the extractive economy. So if I um, asked you about ethnobotany, you could say, sure, indigenous people know about plants, and they probably have their own categories for plants and some knowledge how to grow them. If I ask you about ethnomedicine, you'd say, sure, indigenous people have um, somebody who heals you when you're sick. Ethnocomputing is a little bit more of a challenge. And when I first started it, I was using the term ethnomathematics because people had already studied how to count to 10 in Yoruba or African houses are shaped like a cylinder. You know, these simple translations between indigenous mathematical ideas. I actually started out looking at aerial photographs of African villages. So I noticed that if they were roundhouses, um, they were circles of these circular houses. And there were circles of circles of circles, right? If they were rectangular houses, they were rectangles of rectangles of rectangles. mathematics, that's what we call a fractal, similar shapes at different scales. And nature is full of fractals. In fact, the first book on fractal geometry was called The Fractal Geometry of Nature. So a tree is a branch of a branch of a branch. A mountain is a peak of a peak of a peak. Clouds are puffs of puffs of puffs. So the idea that culturally you could find something that had that kind of repetition of shapes at different scales was sort of unique. At least nobody yet had talked about it. So I started looking at aerial photographs of villages from all over the world, and that was when I realized these were specific to Africa. I wasn't finding these fractal shapes in other villages, and there must be something about the local knowledge system. So I got this Fulbright scholarship to just spend a year traveling around Africa interviewing folks and asking them why they're building and living in fractals. 
So when I got there, I started to realize that there were a lot of these fractal uh, patterns, shape within a shape within a shape, um, in more things than just houses. So they were in textiles, they were in hairstyles. We're familiar in the U.S. with cornrow braiding, right? So you have these ever-diminishing scales of braids and very intricate geometric structures. fractal patterns or divination systems and sculptures and all over the place. And as I was doing these interviews with folks, I would ask them, how come you make it this way? What's the recipe, so to speak, for constructing this? Um, for example, let me just grab a, something off my desk here. I've got here a little uh, circular basket that has these sort of spiral arms emanating from the center um, and I was just in Ethiopia a couple of months ago and, and uh, found one of the women who make these and did a little interview with her trying to figure out, you know, what's the algorithm behind this? Um, now, she didn't... How do you ask that? <laughs> so that's, that's the art of ethnocomputing. So, of course, um, I was working with a translator, right? And so he wasn't sure how to translate the word algorithm. So I said, well, recipe, like a cooking recipe. Um, and when she teaches somebody, she has to convey that system, right? So it's just a matter of finding the right words for it to sort of tease out what we call the heritage algorithm, you know, um, heritage tomatoes, like you go into a fancy restaurant, you have your heritage broccoli or whatever. These are heritage algorithms. So I wrote all this up in a book called African Fractals. And I thought my job was done. Now we're going to have sophisticated uh, African heritage mathematics in the classroom. But I was running into this problem that when I said the word algorithms to math teachers, they would shrink away They'd say, well, the algorithm isn't part of the mathematics curriculum. You're talking about computer science. Picky, picky, picky. So I figured, well, I'll just call it ethnocomputing, right? And we can work with computing classrooms as well as math classrooms. The other problem I was running into was they said, well, yes, I have African-American students. Um, they're struggling in my classroom, but they don't know anything about Africa. So how do you expect this to help them? So I said, well, all the examples in the book, what do you think would work the best? And everybody gave me the same answer. They said the cornrow hair braiding, because that's something students here will recognize, right, and feel a sense of ownership over. Um, so that was our first simulation. We have this suite of simulations called culturally situated design tools. Um, it's all open source and open access. You just go in and start using these things. And the first time I did this, I asked kids, well, you guys know where cornrow braiding comes from? They said, yeah, of course, it comes from Brooklyn. We go hard. So that's when I realized, well, it's not just teaching the math and computing connections. We also have to teach the cultural history. Um, and I didn't know anything about the history of cornrow braiding. Um, so it took quite a bit of research to sort of piece all that out. And we've got it up on our website. 
now. And I've seen lots of folks sort of tap into that. So it's exciting to see it emerge now. There's an uh, Afrofuturist book by uh, Okafore um, uh, called Binti. Binti is a mathematical genius. She is Himba. And she's been accepted into the finest university in the galaxy. And she's decided to go. Her people are the makers of the astrolabe. So in this story, in Binti, astrolabes have evolved into something, something extremely sophisticated that can do more than smartphones. And Binti's insular but brilliant people specialize in making them. Science fiction has long been a bridge between the sciences and the arts, one that continues to evolve and reflect the effects of technology, science, and sociopolitical changes on people in their globalized cultures. It's also a way for some of us who live on borders and fringes to explore identity and the fluidity of culture and movement and speculate about their significance and effect on humanity in the future. Binti encodes the messages in her braiding, um, and she discovers these alien artifacts in Africa that are fractals. Um, so I've been chatting with her a little bit about how um, she was drawing from some of our material, and now I've asked her if we can post some of the stuff that she's created on her website. So I'm excited about these possibilities of that kind of circular flow of value, right? And if you look at the original indigenous culture, it had that characteristic. It wasn't about extracting value and sending it off to some corporate owner. Um, it was about keeping flows of value happening at the grassroots level. So that's been sort of the second phase of what we're doing. We've gone from this STEM education that was culture-based to now thinking about how do you decolonize the economy, right? How do you create the same kinds of economic structures that appeared in these original indigenous contexts, but using the power of science and technology, using information uh, technologies, digital fabrication, and, and other techniques. It seems like a lot of these algorithms that often play out visually fractals have practical aspects to them. You mentioned the cornrows. What is it about certain cultures that plays off of that practical aspect that keeps them passed along? It seems like cornrows weren't invented in Brooklyn. So one of the things that really inspires me about these indigenous systems, and not necessarily just African, so we're also working with a lot of native nations here in the U.S. I've got a lot of friends uh, in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, um, who are from uh, Anishinaabe language groups, Ojibwe, uh, Cree, uh, Potawatomi, and so on. And so uh, when they saw the simulations we had been doing, um, they asked if we could do one that was specific to some of the traditions they were trying to bring back. And one of those was wigwams. So these wigwams, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen longhouse or, or wigwam structures. They're these big arcs, right? Um, and so you have a repetition of arcs and they get smaller and smaller as you go back. So we interviewed some folks who um, knew about the traditions and watched some videos they had created. And one of the things we found was that they had this very intimate relationship with the ecosystem. 
So uh, you've got folks looking through the environment for the particular type of tree that you're going to use to create these arcs, and they're saying things like, oh, you know, this is a pretty dry year, so I think we're going to have to look closer to uh, the lake or closer to the creek uh, to find the kinds of saplings that we're, we're looking for. So they're really talking about something at the micro level, right, that you would need a microscope to really see. We need that kind of intimate relationship with the environment if we're going to stop destroying the earth. So in Ghana this summer, we've got a group in uh, a little village called Intonso um, that creates a textile called Adinkra. And Adinkra ink is made from the bark of a tree. So I was asking them about deforestation, which is a huge problem in Ghana. And they said, no, 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 the body tree where we get the bark, um, those forests are not being cut down because people find the forest so valuable that you're getting more money from the bark than you would from destroying the forest. So the light bulb went on over my head. You know, I thought, wow, this is something that every Western engineer should be learning at the university, that there's ways of collaborating with these ecosystems. Now, they were still using wood fires to boil the water in these huge vats, about 200 liter uh, vats, and they boil it for days. So there's a lot of wood being burned, right? So I asked them about the possibility of using solar energy um, as a way to uh, heat up the water to make the ink. And they were pretty excited about that. Um, in fact, I've got one of the solar stamps that they made here. You can see it's got the little solar tube uh, and a little picture of the sun around it. And then this thing is the shape of the parabolic reflector we had been using. Um, so they, they were super into the idea. Um, so this summer, we're going to be working with a makerspace in the city of Kumasi uh, that's pretty close to this little village. Uh, and we'll be going out experimenting with some different techniques for not only heating up ink to the, the boiling point or the simmering point, but also bringing in automation, maybe even artificial intelligence to monitor this process with sensors. So you don't want to keep things um, low tech. You want to keep things generative. You want to avoid extraction, right? But if very high tech things can help you avoid extraction, more power to it. That just better enables the social justice principles and the sustainability principles. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Hyde. I'm talking with Ron Eglash at the University of Michigan. We're on our Worldview bus trip through Michigan and southern Ontario. I wanted to ask also about, you were talking about decolonizing some people's ideas of what particularly African cultures have to offer, uh, whether that's practical, cultural, artistic when you find the intersections between practical knowledge in the cultures that you're studying and try to teach them to Western audiences, people think of, I think, Western-style colonialism as like a civilizing mission that Western cultures have something to teach underdeveloped cultures. So is there a degree of resistance when you try to borrow or build off of these indigenous systems of knowledge? Well, I get hate mail from neo-Nazis. <laughs> So I guess that counts as resistance, right? I, I don't know. You know, you, you get uh, subtle sorts of resistance, like you get a proposal rejected or you can't get papers published because people think you're nuts. How could Africans have invented fractal geometry before Europeans invented it? So there's, there's varying degrees and, and modes of resistance, I guess. Um, back to the wigwams as an example of this decolonization idea. As we started investigating the wigwams and creating simulations, and I've got a little example here. Um, 
of one of the pieces that the Native American students had done. So with African-American students in cornrows, we had been using 3D printing. Um, So the students would create these virtual cornrow designs on the screen, and then they would 3D print them as mannequin heads. And then we got adult braiders who own cosmetology shops uh, involved in installing the mannequin heads in the window. Um, With Native American groups, the kids didn't want to just automate the making process. They wanted it to be more hands-on. And so we took the virtual design, laid it down on a piece of wood here, Um, The kids drilled holes in the positions where the virtual arcs entered, and then they handcrafted the 3D component. So it's sort of a cyborg. It's a blend of the artificial and the the natural. And I found that kind of medium, to answer your question about resistance, um, often those kinds of compromises spark a lot of interest, that you found something that kind of satisfies both sides of it, right? But as we dug deeper into the arcs, I realized, you know, when you bend wood, it's not actually a parabola. That was a sort of compromise we made with the math teachers to fit the curriculum. But if you really look at the bends that Native Americans are making, it's much closer to what's called a Bezier curve. And folks might be familiar with Bezier curves in Photoshop. You can do these fancy tangled curves. So Bezier, um, it turns out, was a French mathematician working for Renault, the French car company. Through the years, the automobile changed from a novelty to a necessity. It created a new way of life. It provided a whole new concept of transportation for industry. And we became a nation on the move for work and pleasure. Besides designing better automobiles, the manufacturers developed research and testing techniques to help them build safer cars. The science of metallurgy met the challenge of creating more efficient and stronger parts and assemblies. Scientists used all kinds of technical equipment in research and development programs. Ingenious torture tests were designed to reveal fatigue and failure points in parts and assemblies. Um, In the 1950s, they were doing these sort of space cars with these beautiful curves, and Bezier was hired to compute those curves because traditionally what they had done was they took thin pieces of wood and they bent the wood to make those curves. So at the end of the day, when you ask Native Americans where is the knowledge, the mathematics coming from, they say the wood taught us the math, right? When you ask Bezier, the French mathematician, how he learned it, he says, well, I'm a genius and I own copyright on this equation. So that's the difference between the colonized and the decolonized, right? It's not that the mathematics is actually different and it's not that the process is necessarily different. They're both learning from the wood. It's just that in the Native American framework, you want to emphasize that relationship with nature and keep that cycle going. In the European context, it's all about intellectual property rights. And so you want to emphasize, you know, the lone genius working at night in the lab, right? But that kind of entry into the history of European mathematics, I think, is also a necessary step in all this. Yeah, because you've talked about how fractals could be infinitely reproduced, that if a pattern is copied, they could either be infinitely small or large or infinitely kind of go on in a certain direction. 
that seems to be antithetical to the limits of European-style rationalism. And what's the kind of history of fractals in Western European understandings of these mathematical ideas? So if you go back to the time of Plato, there's this thing called the Platonic Reform, where Plato and his buddies get together and they say, look, we've got to eliminate infinity. It's confusing. Infinity plus infinity equals infinity, right? doesn't make any sense. It's self-annihilating was the term that Aristotle used for it. So they banished infinity from mathematics for about 1,500 years. Um, and it's not until much later in the game that a guy named George Cantor comes up with this idea of what he called transfinite set theory. Um, and so Cantor is the father of fractal geometry, and that's also where a true mathematical treatment of infinity is born. Now, by odd coincidence, Cantor had a cousin that lived in Germany the same time as him who was an expert in the geometry of Egyptian art. And if you look at the geometry of Egyptian art in the capitals of the columns of the Egyptian temples, you see something that looks a lot like the Cantor set, the original transfinite set theory visualization. Um, so it's kind of neat to think that it may actually be an African influence in Western history that gave Cantor that first idea of fractals. You know, it, we live in this weird era of sort of renewed racism, right? And I don't want to jump aboard the bandwagon that says, you know, well, you guys did something, so tit for tat, we're going to talk about how superior this other cultural group is, right? So in digging around through that history of Western mathematics, I often find myself asking these same questions about, say, for example, um, Appalachian groups. If I had me a needle and a thread, fine as I could sew, Saw my true love to my side, down this creek I'd go. Swing and turn, jubilee, lift and learn, jubilee. If I had no horse to ride, I'd be found a-crawling Up and down this rocky road, looking for my darling. Swing and turn, jubilee, lift and learn, jubilee. So here you have an oppressed, socioeconomically uh, um, disadvantaged white uh, community. And so we've been looking at some of the heritage algorithms in the quilts from those groups. And so it's kind of neat to have this room full of Native American kids, but they're looking at Appalachian quilts, right? And one of the things they're finding is a pattern called the Radical Rose pattern, which was a symbol of the abolitionist movement. Now, why was it that 100 years ago, these groups were champions of the abolitionist movement? Well, you have to go into the history and, and realize that wasn't Trump country back then. Folks saw some uh, resemblance between the sort of thing that the white community was going through and the sort of thing that enslaved black populations were going through. So it's a real eye-opener for kids. You know, this ethno-computing, ethno-mathematics doesn't have to be a, a hooray for my team sort of thing, right? It can actually be a bridge between these communities. I 
often point out to folks that if you look at the history of the binary code, um, George Boole was the inventor of Boolean algebra. Um, and sometimes today you'll do a Boolean search on the internet or something. So Boole was a really low-income working-class kid. At age 16, he was the sole means of financial support for his entire family. And so when he tried to get into Cambridge, he was rejected, not because he was not brilliant enough. He was actually publishing papers in the Cambridge Journal of Mathematics, um, but because he wasn't a gentleman, right? So he grew up with a sense not of racial oppression, but of socioeconomic class oppression. And he never lost that sense of injustice and what it would mean to have a more socially just System. So if you look at the book in which he introduces Boolean algebra, which he called the laws of thought, he has a lot of examples where he's talking about race as sort of binary categories and messing around with that. And when I first came across it, I thought, well, you know, there must be some sort of weird racist thing going on. But as I started to look through his career, I started to realize, to the contrary, um, he was a champion, for example, of this movement to prevent people from overworking. So people were working on Sundays, and they were, they were working past five o'clock. Um, and so there were a lot of these working class movements that even as a professional mathematician, he was still very much involved in. So I think recovering some of these intersections between culture and mathematics and computing, whether through ethnographic means or historical means, whatever it is, is more than just championing a particular ethnic group, right? It's really being able to rethink the relationships between science and technology and, and the social dynamics that underlie them. That was University of Michigan professor Ron Eglash, the creator of the field of ethno-computing. I spoke to him in his office when Worldview was on a road trip of the Great Lakes last month. You could check out some of the other stops we made by visiting wbez.org slash wvbus. We'll continue the conversation after the break. I'm Julian Haida, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida in for Jerome McDonald, and we are on the WV bus trip, the Worldview road trip of the Midwest, Canada, and we've stopped in Ann Arbor. I'm here with Professor Ron Eglash. He is a professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan, and he has contributed greatly to the field of ethnocomputing. It seems that a lot of these, if you want to call them kind of indigenous ways of doing math or mathematical principles of marginalized peoples, have a lot to do with uh, their relationship with the natural environment. And we're talking a lot in this country about math education, uh, which you're involved with, as being kind of an economic or lifting people out of poverty, giving people social and political opportunities. And we think of development, cities as technology, as moving away from the natural environment. How do you parse that kind of apparent incongruence there? 
So I'm not sure that I would characterize indigenous cultures as um, more natural or more organic. Um, I think that kind of thinking of, you know, culture on one side of the divide and, and nature on the other side of the divide is itself a result of a kind of colonial process, right? You look at a tree, and the tree doesn't have a department of mathematics and department of chemistry. Those are, those are things that we invented so that we could squabble over who gets tenure and what journal you get produced in. Um, but I try to get my students thinking about whether it's uh, the agency of nature that's producing a logarithmic spiral, the agency of people that's producing a logarithmic spiral, um, that those are both ways of investigating kind of creativity, Right. So once you start thinking about the whole economy in those terms, it makes much more sense to ask yourself not just how do we change the input to the STEM pipeline? How do I make sure that the human resources department at Facebook can pat themselves on the back for having a very diverse workforce? Um, But rather thinking also about the output of the STEM pipeline. What is it that science and technology is producing? Um, And so that's where a lot of, I think, the cutting-edge innovation can happen. So we've been investigating things like artificial intelligence and new uh, materials development, nanotechnology, as uh, equally attractive places where we can rethink those relationships between science and technology. Now, no surprise, when you um, work with underrepresented students and you tell them, hey, by the way, there's this cool way of using science to oppose racism and poverty, they get more interested in going to scientific careers. So it's really, you know, one side of that pipeline will, will help feed the other. We don't want to just increase the number of American students in STEM. We want to We want to make sure everybody's involved. We want to increase the diversity of STEM programs as well. And that's been a theme of this science fair. We get the most out of all our nation's talent. And that means reaching out to boys and girls, men and women of all races, all backgrounds. Science is for all of us. And we want our classrooms and labs and workplaces and media to reflect that. I suppose I was asking, is there a danger of moving away from nature uh, in the sense that people are focusing, they're moving towards cities. More than half the world's population lives in cities. There's a separation from nature. And and what does that do to one's ability to think mathematically? So when I was an undergrad, I majored in cybernetics. And when I was a graduate student, there was no cybernetics program, so I got the nearest thing I could find, which is systems engineering. So these were both ways of moving across a bunch of different science and technology disciplines, right? But when I got into a a PhD program, I wanted to make sure that I got a chance to look at the other side of things. So I went to the History of Consciousness Department at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and my uh, graduate advisor there, Donna Haraway, had just published this paper called A Cyborg Manifesto. Um, The whole point of her paper was to say, we've been thinking too much about good being on the natural side and bad being on the artificial side, rather than looking at how those divisions are the things that are getting us in trouble in the first place, right? So she uses that metaphor of the cyborg to talk about the ways that we are always already artificial from day one. Um, Just being a human being, we're using linguistics. We're using something that's culturally transmitted, not encoded into our DNA. Anytime you're using something that's culturally transmitted, you're essentially using a technology. At a very young age, my uh, immune system was reprogrammed 
um, right, through these little shots, this immunization. Um, I'm wearing a pair of glasses, so I'm correcting my eyesight in a sort of cyborgian way. So really, when you think about clothing and everything else, even going back generations, so why are my teeth so small compared to my ancestors? Well, my ancestors didn't have fire. They had these huge molars. You ever look at Neanderthal jaws? So we have these little teeny tiny teeth because we've been using fire for so long. That's sort of blended in with the very flesh and bones of our body. So uh, from day one, we've always been cyborgs. The question isn't uh, a natural versus a cyborg human. It's a question of cyborgs that are disaster because they're based on extraction and militarism and all the other bad things that are going on in the world versus cyborgs that are beneficial. Um, from my point of view, the great thing is about these indigenous cultures is they give you a model for rethinking that relationship between society and nature such that it's a beneficial cyborg and not a harmful one. mentioned the economic potential for understanding the world in algorithmic and naturally kind of mathematic ways. What is some of that potential? So I, I wouldn't call it a more natural way. I would simply call it a more generative way. What's the difference? Okay. So let's say that I'm uh, in an indigenous society that does some kind of hairstyling. And I ask somebody, wow, that's a beautiful hairstyle you've got. They say, yeah, you know, my friend spent three hours this morning braiding my hair. Um, took a long time, but she loves me so much, right? And so when you look at indigenous art, little teeny tiny beads, thousands of these little braids, little intricate carvings within carvings, you're seeing the labor value, right? You're seeing that generative value as it was sort of laid out. Now compare that to buying a friendship card at Walmart. So I go into Walmart, I find one of these cards. I don't want my friend to see the horrible labor conditions and exploitation that resulted in this card. All of that has to be disguised, right? So on the one hand, the thing that's generating value is being put out on display. Those economies want you to be able to see the labor manifested in braids and beads and the quality of the craft, right? Whereas in this other extractive economy, you're trying to disguise those relationships as much as possible so that nobody notices the extraction. So that's the difference between the two. It's not a difference between natural and artificial. It's a difference between keeping value cycling off in unalienated forms versus being able to extract that value and carry it off to either a corporation or a, or a state. I think one of the challenges in thinking through this has been that traditionally um, the right wing has championed free markets and capitalism, and the left wing has championed um, state ownership and socialism. But if you look at those histories, they're astonishingly similar. You know, you look at the pollution that was left over in the Soviet Union before it collapsed, it looks just like the pollution in the United States. The labor exploitation was the same, right? Um, you're not seeing these sort of worker utopias, and that's because they're both are cases of an extractive economy. 
I often compare the difference between um, Prague in 1968 and uh, General Electric in 1968. So folks know about the Prague Spring. Тихая, ползучая контрреволюция развернула наступление, ставя прежнюю цель – вернуть Чехословакию в лона Запада. The Cold War had lost a lot of its iciness when just a few hours earlier the Russian leaders had taken leave with warm farewells, smiling, carrying flowers of friendship and with kisses for their Czech comrades. But so soon did the smiles disappear, the flowers wilt and the kissed cheeks turn away. In 1968, they had this sort of uh, workers' uprising in Czechoslovakia. They decided they were going to have factories that were run by the workers, and they'd have workers' councils uh, deciding you know, what the hours would be, what product would be made, and so on. Um, and there was this brief blossoming, the Prague Spring of Freedom. The same thing was happening in 1968 in the United States uh, at General Electric. From childhood, man is attracted by moving objects that are automatically controlled. He is inherently lazy, but he is also mechanically minded. That's why he is always inventing things to do his work and ease his own burden. So they had this brief moment where folks were trying uh, factory floor control. So the workers would actually be in control of the machines, not the foremen, right? Now, in the case of General Electric, it worked too well. So it got to the point where folks said, oh, my God, they're taking over. And so the GE executives came in and shut the whole thing down. In the case of Czechoslovakia in 1968, it was Soviet tanks that rolled into Prague and shut the whole thing down, right? Um, so yeah, there's a difference between executives and tanks, but it's basically the same process. It's the refusal of either capitalism or socialism to enable a kind of generative economy. spaces. We have all these opportunities to actually have a bottom-up economy where things are, are now owned by these worker collaboratives. Even on the internet, you now have platform cooperativism, where you have the equivalent of something like Uber, right? But in the case of Green Taxi, which is in Colorado, it's not owned by some corporation. It's owned by the drivers of the taxis. Um, so that's the wonderful possibilities that you have once you start enabling these bottom-up economies. Listening to Worldview on WBEZ, I'm Julian Haida in today for Jerome McDonnell, and I've been talking with Ron Eglash at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He created the field of ethnocomputing, which is a neat way of understanding algorithms through non-Western and colonized cultures. They didn't even try that hard, they just came up with them. In case you have a good ear, you may have also noticed that we've been playing a lot of music from the jazz legend Sun Ra. Eglash's website, aptly titled Culturally Situated Design Tools, 
cites Sun Ra as one of a handful of Afrofuturist musicians who used indigenous patterns in his music. Coming up after the break here on WBEZ 91.5, we'll hear more about ethno-computing and the dangers of commodifying indigenous knowledge. Stay with us. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, in today for Jerome McDonald. Last month, Worldview went on a road trip of the Great Lakes region, and I had an opportunity during that road trip to sit down with Professor Ron Eglash at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He spent decades studying the ways in which colonized and non-Western cultures organized their knowledge for practical, artistic, or spiritual purposes in a way that mimics modern algorithms, like in computers. Eglash thinks that these forms of knowledge can help solve some of the big problems like colonialism and an extractive economy. But I asked him if he feared the possibility that extractive interests might appropriate some of his research for profit. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to focus on these bottom-up forms and not some kind of politburo, some kind of group high up in the hierarchy um, that says, you know, it's for the good of the people and we're going to create the people's factory. Because it seems like appropriation is an issue. Yes, exactly. So one way to avoid appropriation is to use open source. And that sounds sort of paradoxical. Why would you want to remove copyright protection and patent protection? But what happens when you open source things is that since you're no longer guarding the intellectual property of the code itself and the software, the thing that becomes valuable is the actual physical making of this stuff. And so the fact that you've got now free software that you're downloading and using it with your 3D printer, or in the case of Ypsilanti, we're running a little group that's using um, sustainably harvested wood with the laser cutters. So whatever it is that you're doing materially, as long as that's being drawn by local sources and being controlled by the workers themselves, if you're using open source code and open source blueprints and so on, then you've actually prevented some of the appropriation that can otherwise happen. So you're proposing undoing kind of capitalist and colonial logics that have gotten us to where we are. (laughs) Well, or hacking capitalism, maybe. I mean, the whole capitalism, socialism thing becomes sort of irrelevant, right? That's my point about Prague. It's just as hard having a truly worker-owned, worker-controlled collective under socialism as it is under capitalism. It's just as hard to convince folks, no, this needs to be an organic farm, under socialism as it is under capitalism. Working from the grassroots is always a challenge because you've got these experts coming in saying, no, I'm a professional and I need to be able to tell you what to do. I often find at the end of the day, there's somebody who's going to bring up the word efficiency. And they're going to say, Ron, you know, what you're suggesting sounds very nice, but you'll never get the efficiencies that mass production has. Your little backyard solar energy farm is never going to have the efficiencies that our giant nuclear reactor has. Screw efficiency. I'm going to have that put right on my tombstone. 
You know, I keep hearing it over and over again, and I've looked into the history of that word, efficiency. Um, it starts out with physicists talking about an efficient process, and it makes sense to map that out in equations, right? But when you start taking that concept of efficiency and putting it in social forms, now you're pretending as if it's a law of the universe. Well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to fire all these people because, you know, the laws of the universe are forcing us to do efficiency, right? It'd be vastly better if we could just accept the fact that sometimes inefficient systems are the ones that are socially and ecologically the most beneficial. Are these uh, grassroots economies going to be less good at flooding the world with useless products we don't need? God, I hope so. And is some of that built into uh, indigenous forms of knowledge like fractals? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when you look at the indigenous traditions, uh, they're um, very specific about not creating waste, not creating greed. And, you know, it's not as though these things are, are utopias. Anywhere you go in the world, at any historical moment, in any cultural context, you're going to find people who are jerks, right? And you're also going to find people who are wonderful. And so you need a basic set of principles that allow you to work that out at sort of a a human scale, not let problems fester to the point where you have to call in the police and then somebody gets shot. How much of that plays out when you're teaching, whether that's African-American teenagers, uh, mathematics through cornrows, or indigenous Americans, uh, mathematical principles through wigwams? How much of that kind of social possibility comes through versus, you know, teaching mathematics using a curriculum that is... Uh, <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so we try to practice what we preach. So when the kids create these software projects, they can then upload them to our website and somebody else can download that project and make their own version of it. So the kids are being taught about open source and this idea of the commons, right, that everybody can contribute and everybody can take from day one in our courses. And it's one of the things that's really got me excited. So we now have some really interesting examples of, for example, uh, there was a, a student who was creating the Caribbean flag. So he was of Afro-Caribbean descent, but he really liked using the Native American beadloom simulation that we had. So he was doing the Caribbean flag in this Shoshone uh, beadloom is what it was. And then one of the Navajo students we were working with spotted that. She was using the Navajo rug simulation. So suddenly we had the Caribbean flag done on a Navajo simulated rug that was based on Shoshone beadwork simulation that was based on an Afro-Caribbean heritage. I think the kids are actually far ahead of the adults in some ways that they're already in a kind of uh, transracial or, or post-racial way of thinking about these things, right? They're just naturally curious and they enjoy trading things around. Um, looking at what Latinx kids had done in California they had taken our graffiti simulation, which we had originally done in New York, and we were thinking in terms of, you know, the history of New York graffiti, right? But now you see these kids creating these little Mexican heritage graffiti pieces in California, but using the geometries that they had spotted in the New York graffiti. So you see a lot of this interesting hybridity going on as the kids are trading around these projects. That sounds a lot like the pre-colonial culture sharing that was done in Africa, because you say fractals, cultures, Africa, people are like, well, what part of Africa? And you say it's really everywhere. Did some of that borrowing happen, and how similar is that? 
Oh, absolutely. So a lot of our, our sense of cultural boundaries is something that we've imposed on these things. But when you look at the original context, it was really about trading zones, right? And even when Europeans first showed up, um, that training zone concept was really uh, vital and viable and just fecund, right? You've got a lot of interesting uh, uh, hybrid traditional practices coming out of those intersections. So when, when Europeans first um, show up in Africa, they're encountering glass beads that are from Europe. In a sense, the Africans got to Europe before the Europeans got to Africa. Well, this has been really fascinating. I, I really appreciate learning about the field of ethnocomputing, how people can think mathematically, but in their cultures. Uh, Ron Eglash is a professor at the University of Michigan. We've been touring Lower Michigan and Ontario on our Worldview bus trip. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you wanted to visit Eglash's website, it's called Culturally Situated Design Tools, and I really recommend you do. You could play with all sorts of tools. You can create patterns of indigenous rugs and beadwork, just like the professor was talking about. You can even do cornrows. Visit csdt.rpi.edu. That's csdt.rpi.edu. Tomorrow, Jerome McDonald will be back with you with a live program from the Chicago Botanic Gardens. He's been busy today getting personal with bees, butterflies, bats, and other alliterative pollinators in the northern suburbs. You'll really want to hear what he finds. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and myself, Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Thanks for spending your afternoon with us at Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.